What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word self-control? Self-control. Getting mad at each other. <laughs> I remember an very older niece talking to me. And she used to wash me when she was a 12-year-old and I was a two-year-old. And she says, I remember you. You used to get so mad sometimes. You? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, Come on, Jan. Oh. And I said, oh, I don't remember. <laughs> Uh, this goes way back a hundred years, but and I had two or three neighborhood boys that we chummed around together. And uh, one one cold evening, they decided they wanted to go up in the bowling alley, you know, just to get warmed up, you know. Sure. But the bowling was against my religion, you see, because bowling alley didn't have a very good reputation Why? in those days, you know. So I didn't do that. I didn't go with him. I went back home. Wow. <laughs> what do the two of you think of when you hear the word self-control? In the 60 years you've been together, self-control. Oh, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, is it? What do you think of when you hear the word self-control? Keep your mouth shut. In other words, when it comes to this idea of self-control, the idea is of restraining yourself from doing something that you really want to do, but no, you shouldn't. Self-control. Isn't Chess Johnson amazing? He's 95 years old, 95 years in Central. He tells us that for the first 13 years of his time in Central, he got a pin at the end of every year. Now, all of you people who've been going to church for a long time would realize that for perfect attendance, you would get a pin at the end of every year. 13 pins means that he never missed a Sunday in 13 years. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing in my view. But again, Chess's idea here is the same thing. Look, he said, growing up, there were just certain things that we didn't do. And you know, I really wanted, it's kind of like those boys really wanted to go into that bowling alley to warm up, but even if I wanted to, I couldn't because I shouldn't, therefore I didn't. Self-control. The idea of knowing that you shouldn't do something and then therefore exerting control to make sure you didn't do something that you really wanted to do. Example number three, don't get mad. You may have a right to get mad, you may have a right to get angry, you may have a right to express that anger, but self-control means basically making sure that you don't do something that you really want to do, but know that you shouldn't do it. Common to all three ideas here is the fact of restraining yourself from doing something. But is that right? Is that right? Is that, is that what self-control is? I'm sure we'd all agree that that's an important reality of life. How many of you even this week have resisted, restrained from doing something that you really wanted to do, but you didn't do it because you know you shouldn't? Right? We've been there, right? We, we all know that. But is that self-control? 
Now I want to turn you to a book in the Bible that we're going to look at over the next number of weeks in our series, Fortune Cookie Faith, one-liners, just about everything. We're going to look at the book of Proverbs. So we're going to take some of the one-liners from the book of Proverbs that people think they know, but sometimes, well, maybe we don't know it as well as we think we do. And maybe when we don't know something that we actually think we know, maybe the consequence of that false knowledge is more than we would have anticipated it to be. I believe that's true with the proverb we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29 is one of my favorite proverbs. We're going to look at verse 18. If you took a Bible from the auditorium, that's page 658. And we're going to look at this proverb today. It says this, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. I always have to look at the NIV interpretation because I know the King James Version, right? Without vision, people perish, but blessed is the man that keeps the law. It's the same idea. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. In other words, sometimes we can flip it around. Where there is revelation, people restrain themselves, and blessed is the one who keeps the law. Is, is that right? It's the idea of constraint again, restraint. Restrain yourself, restrain yourself. Now, Proverbs is, is, uh, is a very difficult book often to understand the theme in sections. It, it's not always the case that you can read a chapter in Proverbs and know what a theme is. But our proverb here, verse 18, actually is a part of a section that begins in verse 15, goes through verse 27, and there seems to be, unusually for Proverbs, a unifying theme. That unifying theme is the idea of discipline. Discipline, whether it be on children, whether that be on nations, whether that be on rulers, if you read it, you definitely get the idea that this section of Proverbs is talking about the importance of discipline. The idea that if a righteous person disciplines themselves in an unrighteous world, they will be blessed. And so we read it from the outset and we do think, hey, this is talking about restraining yourself, restraint. So again, gives us into this idea, look, there will be many times in this life where we will want to do something that we know we shouldn't do, and so the best thing that we can do is not to do it. But I don't believe that that's necessarily what this verse is talking about. At the same time, I don't actually believe this verse is, is telling us that what is important is that in this life, all of us need a vision. How many of you have been in churches where the pastor has stood up, used this passage to basically show how the church has a vision and it's all of your responsibility to help us achieve that vision? Because without a vision, people perish. It's also used, often used to talk about how important it is for you to live with goals, dreams, and have ambitions. That's not what this passage is talking about. Now, is it important to have goals, ambitions, dreams? Is it important for a church to have a vision that we can all rally around? Absolutely. Just don't use this passage to, to affirm that because it's not what it's saying. At the same time, it's not saying that the best thing for a Christian to do or a person of faith to do is essentially not to do that very thing that you want to do but know you shouldn't. Oh, that's a good thing to do, but it's not the best thing to do. 
Now, to get into the idea here, let's unpack this first part of the verse, this first line, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Let's unpack this. There are three key words in this first section. The first one is this idea where there is no. There is no is that Hebrew word ayin, and that basically means nothing or without or non-existence. When something isn't existing, that's the idea here. When something is missing. Now, the second word here, key word, is really important. It's that word chazon, revelation, vision. It basically refers to the divine communication given to prophets. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord, the vision of the Lord given to the prophet Isaiah, chazon. So overwhelmingly, 35 uses of this noun in 34 Old Testament verses is talking about that revelation, that insight that is given to the prophets that was revealed to the people through the prophets. So it's often used in the title of a book of the prophets, the vision of the prophet Isaiah, for example, or Jeremiah, or that kind of thing. And uh, then it's also used to describe why they did what they did, because they had this chazon, they had this revelation. So the idea in these two words is that essentially that when this revelation that comes to prophets is non-existent, then what we have is yepara. We have people running wild, out of control. The word picture here is essentially of someone in a turban wearing a turban, going to a funeral, and Leviticus says when they would go to a funeral, they would basically undo, untie that turban so that their hair would run wild. That's the word picture. So basically, what we're seeing is that the the first part of this is saying, look, non-existent prophetic communication results in people running wild. So in other words, if you're in here today and there's an aspect of your character that is out of sync with the cause of Christ, with the person of Christ, then basically it's probably because what you really need is something from the outside to actually refocus you and reorient you. How many of us have ever felt like that? We have, and we were struggling with an aspect of a character that that is running wild, or or a habit that we can't control, or a hurt that just eats us up on the inside. And we we say sometimes in our prayers, God, won't you just help me? Can you just not do fill in the blank? And so this idea in, in, in this verse appears to be, look, without that prophetic ministry of the prophets, God's people run wild. So what's the solution to God's people running wild then? So that's the question, right? Well, something isn't present or existent. God's people do this. So if God doesn't want his people to do this, what does God need to do? Follow? What's the solution to this? Is it, isn't it by necessity more prophetic revelation? Isn't that what we need? We need more of the Spirit of God doing incredible things so that we would take our eyes off ourselves and our own issues and then our help from the outside would come on the inside and we would all be transformed. Isn't that what we need? It seems to make sense. Except when you read your Bible, God 
intentionally withholds prophetic revelation. In other words, there were major seasons of life in the Old Testament where God said, I am not going to send the prophets. Hang on here, right? Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were banned from the garden, and God then gave his revelation to help his people to live like he wanted them to live, and to do that, he raised prophets, Moses and all the other prophets, in order to help them how to live, because they needed that kind of thing. And now God intentionally withholds that revelation, and yet still would hold his people responsible for the sin that he's supposed to help them deal with? God intentionally withholds his revelation. A couple of verses, Amos 8, 11 and 12. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food a thirstful, or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Chazon. They're searching for it. They're desperate for it. They need it, right, not to run wild. And yet God intentionally withholds it. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. First text I ever preached in this church. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. Chazon. Psalm 74, verse 9. We are given no signs from God, no chazon, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. The point here is easy to see. God intentionally withheld prophetic revelation. He withholds chazon. Why would he do that if revelation through the prophetic ministry was needed and was what people needed in order to restrain themselves? Are you following me? Why would God withhold something we need? Why would he do that? Now, there's another side to this, too. The other side to this is when you look at the Old Testament, you also realize that even with Chazon, the people ran wild. Even with it, they ran wild. One example of many. Exodus Chapter 32, verses 25 and 26, this is the story of the golden calf, while Moses, their leader, their prophetic figure through whom God spoke, is up on the mountain receiving the law, what's happening underneath. Moses saw that the people were running wild, yipara, same word, and that Aaron had let them get out of control. And so became a laughing, become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp. This is Moses and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And in contrast to the first, uh, what we see here is that in contrast, okay, to what should have been happening if there was prophetic revelation, with prophetic revelation, we now see that there is still people running wild. What, what do we need to reel ourselves in? What do we need when we find ourselves wanting to do something we know we shouldn't do? What do we need? The first part of the verse seems to tell us, hey, what we need is this revelation, this, this prophetic revelation, this thing that we don't yet possess. 
But the answer is, even when something is present, maybe we're not availing ourselves to what we have. That's the second part. Even with it, we can still run wild. See, in contrast to that first line, where there is no revelation, people will cast off restraint. This second line of the proverb, the one that everybody misses, oh, without a vision, people perish. We don't quote the other part of the line. But in contrast to that first line, the second line provides the positive wording. There is a blessing for the one who keeps the law. This is what we need to do to live the blessed life. Whether there is the prophetic revelation or whether there is not the prophetic revelation, the call of God to live a blessed life is a call to basically obey the law, to keep the law. And so what we see then is that the solution to this conundrum of what God is going to do with his people when they run wild, what we need to do when we find ourselves in a situation to do something that we know we should not do, is not external control over internal desires, but to regulate our lives according to the Torah, according to the law. That's the call of God to his people of old. Look, whether there is prophetic revelation or whether there isn't, your blessedness in life is directly linked to your ability, your willingness to heed, to keep the law. In other words, external discipline is a poor substitute for self-discipline, for internal discipline. So let's look at this part of the verse, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Let's do exactly the same thing as we did with the first part of the verse. Let's unpack the words. The first word here, blessed, reminds us of the Beatitudes of Jesus, blessed or happy, that's essentially what it means, happiness, blessedness. The next verse here, heeds, is the word shamar. Some of you will familiar with the Bible, we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. We'll go there in a second. It means to keep watch, to guard, to preserve, to follow. And the third one here, wisdom's instruction, is the word Torah, often translated as law, but it means rule, decision, principles, directions, instructions. And the modern translations move away from the word law because what do we think of when we hear the word law? Legalism. I want to do something, but I know I shouldn't because it's against God's law, so I won't. So they moved away from that because for the, for the Jew, the Torah is far more than law and legalism. It is a rule of life. It is God's wisdom revealed in flesh. And so what we have in this Section is this idea, the blessed life is not experienced in legalistic observance, but the willingness to heed the voice of God, whether through the chazon or the Torah. God spoke, Hebrews chapter 1, in different ways at different times, raising prophets through the law. And the call of God on his people was, listen, whether there is that prophetic revelation through the prophets or whether that is absent and all you have is my Torah, 
both of them are my word. Heed this. Listen to this. One of the interesting factors is that God's people ran wild the most during those seasons where prophetic ministry was at its peak. The picture is fascinating in the Old Testament. There were seasons of prophetic famine which witnessed God's people running wild, and then there are seasons of prophetic revelation which reveal chaos. The key, therefore, is essentially not what is happening out there through a prophet, but actually what is happening in here in a person's heart. And for that reason, the solution was not external control over an internal desire, but to regulate our life according to the Torah. Blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. In heeding wisdom's instructions, in heeding the voice of God, that is the key, the Bible says, the proverb says, to the blessed life. That's the key to self-control, whatever that is. Now, when it comes to heeding and obeying the law, in Judaism, there was a special concept that's being addressed. Let me try and explain it to you like this. When I was growing up, my mother used to tell me something and I used to listen to it but not hear it because I wouldn't do it. She would say it a second time. I would listen to it but I wouldn't do it. And then she would say, I am not saying this a third time. And if you do that, I find myself doing that with my kids now and again too. And fortunately for my mother, in the Bible, God actually says over and over again the same thing over and over again. The idea is simply this. God recognizes that in order to internalize something, it often needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated. One of the keys to internalization in the Old Testament was the repetition and the review of what we'd heard. So in the Old Testament, the transition from knowing something, hey, I really want to do this, but I know I shouldn't do it, and actually making it a part of our internal fabric, the way we think and breathe and move, is to repeat and to repeat and to repeat. And what a Jew believes, is, a Jew would believe, is that through the repetition of the law, it gets internalized in the heart, and when it's internalized in the heart, the character transformation happens so that what we want to do but no, we shouldn't do is now replaced to with, why do I want to do that anyway? This is the Jewish idea. The idea that repetition, having the word of God constantly in view with every step that we take is key to internalizing it. And once we internalizing it, there's a shift. The shift isn't, hey, I know I, I really want to do this, but I, don't, I shouldn't do it, so I'm not going to. The shift is, why do I want to do this anyway? Wow, can you believe I used to think like that, that I used to act like that? And so for a Jew, the idea is repeat. Then it's internalized. And once it's internalized, God starts to work and that character transformation happens. That's the idea. Now, Consider passages like Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. That's the Shema that we talked about. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, the Lord is one. And what does God's word tell God's people to do with this truth? God's word says, listen, with this truth and the truth of the Torah, you're to write it on your wrist, right? Wear it on your forehead. In other words, it's to become a total part of you on the inside. And then it says, you're to do this whether you are sitting at home, walking by the way, laying down, and getting up. In other, in other words, every fabric of life is supposed to be influenced by the reality of who God is and what his word says. That's the way to internalize it, to be overwhelmed with it, confronted with it over and over and over again. And once that happens, it's internalized. Once it's internalized, we shift from, I really want to, but I shouldn't, so I won't, in a Jewish mind, to, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to do what God wants. In this moment, we see a subtle but a major shift between Judaism and Christianity at this very point. See, the Jewish faith seems to tell us that repetition leads to internalization, and that internalization leads to a character change. But the Christian faith says, no, wait a minute. Something else needs to happen. A Jewish rabbi was once asked to describe the difference between the Jewish religion and the Christian faith. This is the story that they told. They said, imagine that uh, there was a space agency and that space agency essentially decided to send a rocket off into space. That rocket was sent off into space and as it's in space, the rocket malfunctioned and now there was a problem. How do these astronauts get back home? That rabbi said the difference between Judaism and Christianity is essentially what the person did, the astronauts did, in order to get back home. They said the Jewish faith believes that in the instruction manual, the Torah, God's people essentially have everything they need to find their way home. All they need to do is to read the manual, turn the manual, internalize the manual, and follow the steps and they'll make their way home. It's that easy. In other words, if, you, if you've got an issue in your life, keep working on it, keep working on it, keep working on it, keep working on it, keep internalizing it, keep internalizing on it, never give up, never give up, and at one point in time, what you've internalized will be changed. It's all in God's time about how that will happen. But the rabbi then goes on to say, but Christianity differs. Christianity says that, hey, that rocket in space is so malfunctioned, it is so beat up, it is so dead, that the only solution for that, those astronauts to get back home is for mission control to send another rocket up into space in order to bring those people home. In other words... Sometimes we try and we try and we try to keep our mouth shut, to not get mad, not go to the places we think we shouldn't go, but we do anyway, not do those things we think we shouldn't be doing, but do anyway. We try and we try and we try and we try, and it never works. And Christianity says, no, it doesn't work because the real distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the penalty of sin and it's sin that is a power and that power keeps us hostage to those selfish, sinful desires. 
This is the way the author of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews chapter 8. Look at this text, and you see the distinction here. Notice the emphasis on the forgiveness of sins. The days are, and he's quoting here, by the way, from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. This is one of the only, and I believe the only Old Testament passage where God is talking about writing his law, his word, his Torah on the heart. And look at how this is going to be done. So this is Jeremiah 31, a prophet in the Old Testament saying, hey, God's going to do a new thing. And where I'm going with this, folks, is if you really believe this new thing, it revolutionizes the way we deal with the stuff that we want to get rid of. The days are coming, declares the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, according to Hebrews 8, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. We've looked at that already at Exodus because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see what's gonna happen here? How does the law get on the inside? Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Repetition leads to internalization. Internalization results in character change. That's not how it works, is it? What happens? How does it happen? God is going to write his law, his Torah, his wisdom, his guidance where? On our hearts. That's what God's going to do. No longer as a result of this. Oh, and he says, in our right, I will be their God and they will be my people. Look at this. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Do you see the wonder of the new covenant here? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new The author of Hebrews says, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. The reason that we need God's help to deal with those things that we want to do but know we shouldn't do is it's because sin that leads us to do it. And in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul talks about how when Jesus died, the power of sin was, and the word means annihilated. The controlling power of sin over our lives was annihilated. And in that moment, the law, God's will, God's principles for living were written on our hearts. Guthrie, a commentator, says this, the new covenant establishes a relationship with God and in in that relationship, the laws of God are internalized and the forgiveness of sins is foundational for it. The reason that so many of us say, I wanna do this, but I know I shouldn't do this, so I won't do this, is because we wrestle with the reality of the power of sin. But my question today is, if this is really true, and I believe it is, That God, when Jesus died on the cross, 
destroyed the controlling power of sin and replaced slavery to sin to a slavery to Christ. How therefore should this affect our minds as we battle, and we all do, with those things we wanna do, but no we shouldn't, so we won't. How does it shift? Because if it's really true that we are now slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. How does this new creation deal with those things that we want to do, but no, we shouldn't? Is it exactly the same? I want to tell you, no, it's not the same. The way we deal with the temptation to sin as children of God is not as it was when we're not. The difference between a person who's accepted Jesus and a person who is not is that now through Christ and the mediating presence of the Holy Spirit, we can now say no to that which once we said yes over and over again. That's the difference. And if that is true, why or why or why do we live as if Jesus' death has made no difference at all, at least in our mind. Let's be clear about something here. Sin comes, amongst other things, right, when we take a perfectly natural desire and seek to fulfill it without God. If we're tempted to do that, we'll typically either restrain ourselves or reorient ourselves. And this is where I want to go to the difference between self-discipline and self-control. I believe that the death of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. I really do. And yet I believe so many of us, when it comes to those struggles, those foundational struggles in life, act like we did before we came to Jesus, rather than in the truth of what it's like to live in the presence of Jesus. And that is so hard. That pulls us so far down. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire and seek to express it or fulfill it without reference to God. Think about that for a second. This week, Friday, my day off, spring arrived late. Victor said, hey, we've got yard work to do. I said, okay. So I started to do some yard work, realized I need some supplies from uh, the you know, builder's merchant. So I went to the builder's merchant, took some friends of ours, Ingo and Uta from Germany. And uh, Uta was actually the, the midwife who was there when Jordan, our 12-year-old, was born. So it's, it's great to have you guys uh, with us today. Um, and uh, so there we were, driving on 16th Street, okay? We turned kind of on 16th, and we're going past, you know, the direction, the Heinz factory, you know, that one. You got a little school there, and uh, kids are playing in the playground, and uh, I'll give them a the benefit of the doubt, but somebody threw the ball over the fence. So I kind of look in my mirror, and I'm like, okay, there's a red Lincoln a little bit, you know, a little bit behind. So what do you do? With an animal and a ball, you don't swerve, you don't break heart, right? You just kind of slow down naturally. It's essentially what I did. And then as I'm doing that, I'm looking and this red Lincoln is going a little bit, you know, getting a little bit close. And uh, I, I look in the mirror and I see, Sally was her name, I see her going down over here. It looked like she was looking for something. And woof, straight into the back of the car. I've been in America for a decade. That's my first accident. I don't like no-fault insurance. It feels wrong to me. <laughs> I'm like, I look at Ruta and go, are you guys okay? Yeah, they're okay. And I jump out of the car and I pick up the phone and I call Vipke, right? As I'm going around, I said, hey, hon, you may need to send, uh, you may need to come get Ruta and go, somebody's just gone into the back of me. Her first words to me, I would have lied, be nice. <laughs> be nice. No, are you okay? 
be nice. And then, was it your fault? Be nice. You know why she said be nice? She added, because more people know you through standing on that stage than you know them. Be nice. I didn't like that very much. (laughs) Be nice. Why Why would she tell me to be nice? Because she knew that there was a perfectly natural reaction to being, what, wronged or hurt or, right? What is that? Anger and frustration. It's a perfectly natural reaction. God gets angry when we sin, but he deals with that anger appropriately. The Bible says he unfurled that anger on Christ at the cross. See, self-discipline in that moment would look something like this. I'd be walking to Sally, and I would be saying, you really want to give Sally a piece of your mind, but she may know you even though you don't know her. You will destroy your reputation uh, as a pastor of this church and this church's reputation. So even though you want to say something and really go at her, don't. And so I didn't. That sounds pretty good, right? But how many of you have ever lived like that over a period of time? Going to work and there's a colleague in work, right? And they drive you absolutely nuts. And you go in there, and they start this thing again. And you're like, you really want to say something? You're going to destroy your reputation with this? Don't. And so you don't. You'd all agree, that's a pretty good thing, right? If you want to do something, and you know you shouldn't do it, to not do it is actually really, really good. But that's self-discipline. See, the reality of a situation like this is, It kind of becomes almost like a volcano on the inside. You've got a cold orange, and it bubbles, and it bubbles, and it bubbles, and at some point in time, it explodes, right? And there is this kind of explosion of anger and frustration. And if you're a really good Christian, then what will happen is between that explosion and the next explosion, the time will get a little bit longer, and hopefully over time, whether they'll move or die, or maybe you just maybe will change, and then it will drop. That's self-discipline. It's where you take... Okay, you take an idea of what you know is the right thing to do, and you're dealing with the frustration on the inside, and you're saying, don't express that natural frustration, because if you do, it will basically work out bad for you. Now, this happens in every area of life. If you're addicted to something, it's the same way. All too often we try to deal with our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups by kind of imposing this kind of limitation, this restriction on a desire to do something. And invariably we kind of stop doing it, and on the outside that looks really, really good. But on the inside, that's not freedom. That's also not self-control. Now on the outside, nobody would know any different, would they? Sally would have left that accident and she would have said, wow, those people from Central seem to be quite nice, I hope. She wouldn't have known any different, but I would have known on the inside. And I would have gone away thanking God that that volcano of frustration on the inside didn't explode, right? Maybe till the next time. But what does it look like with self-control? What does it look like if this is really, really true, that when Jesus died on the cross, 
The penalty for my sin was actually paid for once and for all. God's anger at my sin was just laid on Jesus Christ. And rather than punishment, I received the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit upon my confession of faith, saying, Jesus, I believe in you. The Bible says then, if I believe in my heart, Christ comes to live in me. His law is written in me. What does it look like now? That same situation. Well, self-control is the ability to regulate our personal life so that we are neither compelled nor controlled by sin. Self-control is the ability to regulate our, our personal life according to the fact that we have become new creatures in Jesus Christ, and that affects how we behave. So what would it look like in a situation like that? What it would have looked like is that I would have opened the car, and if we all lived like this, I would have phoned Vipka, and Vipka would have said, oh, how wonderful do you get an opportunity to share the compassion and the mercy of God with a lady who really needs it right now. Doesn't happen, does it? <laughs> I would have walked up to Sally, and I would have said, hey, we're totally fine. Are you okay? Yeah? Well, thank you for this. Sally told me that in, in the fall, she was in Florida, somebody rear-ended her, and she said, now it knows what it now she knows what it felt like. And I would have done all of that because I realized that I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus and God had forgiven me of so much more and had actually dealt with his, his anger in an appropriate way and I would have just recognized how important it is for me to do the same thing because that's what Jesus did for me. Do you see the difference? On the outside, Sally wouldn't have noticed any difference at all. Oh, those people from Central seem to be quite nice. I hope that's what she said. But on the inside, in the first example, I'm being eaten up by this rage that I'm not dealing with. In this example, I'm just coasting through life, realizing that God's got this and God's got me. That's self-control, folks, right there. Self-control isn't restraining yourself from doing something that you really want to do. Self-control is reorienting your mind to who God says you are and living according to that. They look the same on the outside, but on the inside, one person's free and enjoying Jesus, and the other person's bound and still doesn't know how good it is to have their sins forgiven. That's the difference. Look, the truth is we all wrestle with stuff. All of us do. How we deal with that is so important. You see, there's a temptation that we all have to seek the spectacular. When we're wrestling with something, it's as if we want God to send a prophet of some kind to speak a word, to do something, to just wave a wand and that desire on the inside to, to do wrong or to, to respond inappropriately is just removed for us from us. But that's spectacular. It's not supernatural. What is supernatural is the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, sin no longer has the right to control our emotions and our reactions. That's supernatural. It means it doesn't matter what I come across this week. It doesn't matter what I face this week. Because if God is for me, who can be against me? When I'm tempted to respond in the way that I once did, I recognize that's not me anymore. That person was crucified with Christ, the Bible says, on the cross. That person's dead. But this person that's alive, wow, this person is a child of God. 
And this child of God is free to make the choices that God wants me to make. Friends, there's a world of difference between freedom that has been given to you because you're a child of God and kind of living in a way that you think you need to live, but you aren't doing it with all of your heart. Being a child of God gives us the right to be called children of God. And when we embrace that for what it is, it changes the way we deal with situations from the inside out. No longer will we misunderstand and misrepresent self-discipline for self-control. We will say, hey, this is a privilege to be called a child of God. Where do I leave this? Look, if the best that you and I can do is to exert external pressure on a temptation to do, go against God's will, then do it. Look, if your relationship with God isn't that dynamic, and the best thing that you can do the next time that you're tempted to respond in an inappropriate way or do something you know you shouldn't do, if the best thing that you can do is not to do it, hey, that's a good thing. Don't do it. For God's sake, don't do it. But for your sake, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Because that will eat you up on the inside and you will not know the victorious Christian life. The better way is to live out the new creation that you have become. And look, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're battling stuff, could I suggest to you that the best thing that you can do for yourself as well as for the people around you is to just look to the cross and say, God, thank you for what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you become a new creation. And as you just read God's word, you have to read God's word to know what God's will is, folks. As you engage in a relationship with Jesus who is very much alive, as you get to know how the Holy Spirit works, your will starts to change. And you start to change. And life starts to make sense. Live that way. And live for God's sake that way. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. I want to give you an opportunity just to think about this message. Think about your life this week. What has irritated you and how have you responded? What has been your default reaction to restrain yourself or to reorient your mind? If you found yourself this week saying, I really want to do this, but I shouldn't, so I won't, I just want to celebrate that decision. But at the same time, I want to challenge you to think differently. I want to challenge you to recognize that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're no longer a slave to sin. You are a child of God. And through appropriating the finished work of Christ into your life, change can happen from the inside out. Father, for those people who really identify with what I've just said, I pray, Father, that you would take through your Holy Spirit their life and that you would start to work on the inside and remind them not of what they once were, but of who they are now, your children. And I pray, Father, that that difference would be so tangible that they would increasingly find themselves responding to situations differently because they are your children. And Father, more than anything else this morning, we want to thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that what the prophet Jeremiah 
once prayed for, we now live in that reality that this new covenant has just destroyed that controlling power of sin. And if you are here this morning and you've never taken that step to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or even this morning that you are convicted of the fact that you've walked away in your heart, I want to give you an opportunity just to respond in your heart. The Bible makes it pretty clear how we do that. Romans 3.23, for we're all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If that's your experience, just tell him. Father, I believe in you. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for what he's done for me. I turn away from my sin. I repent of it. And I put my faith firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite him to be the Lord, the master, and the ruler of my life. If you've prayed that prayer, the Bible says that in this moment, the Spirit of God has taken residence in your life and that his law has been internalized. His will through the Holy Spirit has been just revealed to you. Father, I want to pray for those people in this place that have made that decision today, and I pray that you would really be with them and bless them. Father, encourage them before they leave, even to speak to a person, tell them that what they've done. And God, may you encourage them, and may you encourage us to live the lives that you called us to live, the victorious life in Jesus' name. Amen.